There's a song that, um, depending how old you are, you might think is fairly new, or you might think has been done many times, because it has, and it's a song called Forever Young. Now, the irony of this song is, it was first covered in 1984, and then it has since been covered multiple times. So the most recent one that you might know, the version that you might know, if I was to sing it, which I won't, because I'm not on the sing team for reasons of spiritual gifting... But it goes like this. Forever young. I mean, I don't know. How do you read a song? I'll just sing it. (laughs) Forever young. I want to be forever young. Do you really want to live forever? Forever. Forever. And it goes on. Now, that song last covered in 2005. So for those of us who are kind of feeling like we're still young and with it. Oh, yeah, I know that song. That was 17 years ago. That's a long time, that's a whole generation. So if you're a teenager and you're 17, that's a lifetime ago. But that song, covered and covered and covered again, Forever Young, really has that, it's actually a very sad song. It's actually quite a dark song, but it's a song that was sung last in 2005 by a band called Youth Group. And of course, we have Youth Group here, I think it's happening this Friday, this term. It is. Um, Youth groups are about youth and, and living you know, for the day and and enjoying life. We want to live and enjoy life. Life is a good thing. Life is a gift. But I think for the band, for anyone who's covered this song for us, anyone who listened to it, who thought it was catchy, I suspect we deep down would love those words of living forever to be true. I suspect we do want to live forever. I suspect that our society would like to live forever. How do we know this? Well, you've only got to see the advertising that's well, spent billions on convincing you to buy the things that help you feel like you'll live forever. We purchase it, we live for it, we value it, we fight for it, we want to live forever. Do you want to live forever? I suspect deep down, secretly we do. In Genesis 5... When we read that, when Bren read that for us and you saw those words which I hope are in front of you, could you not help but think, goodness, living for hundreds of years? That would be pretty good. That would mean I could, well, my bucket list would be surely ticked off by the end of living for, say, 900 years. It seems as if in Genesis 5... We see in this book of the generations, it seems as if people could live forever. And it does seem like that's a good thing. Have a look there, Genesis 5. uh, What's fascinating, I think, in Genesis 5 is you see here in the very first verse, it says this is the book of the generations. Now, why that's fascinating is this. um, We have in our Bibles big numbers and little numbers. So if you're new to the Bible, here's a short explanation. Those are chapters and verses, we call them chapters or sentences. Versification, as we see it in our Bibles, came in at the time of Reformation. So that's a fairly relatively new thing. They didn't have chapters and verse numbers when Genesis was first penned. What they did have were markers in the text that said, this is a new episode. And the marker in Genesis is this. These are the generations of. You see it throughout the book. These are the generations of. It's the writer saying, new episode. 
new big unit, something to see here. And as he writes this, what's fascinating as well is, have a look at verses 1 and 2. Does that remind you of anything? As you look at verses 1 and 2, what do you notice right now? All the lights are going off. That's a summary of Genesis 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, it's almost like after the episode of Cain and Abel, after the tragic and trauma and the appalling way in which a brother murders a brother, the writer is now saying, all right, let's start again. These are the generations of... And this is, in a way, he is starting again because we saw Cain's line in chapter 4. There was Cain and Cain's children. It got to Lamech. There are two Lamechs, by the way. There's a different Lamech here than Cain's line of Lamech. We saw Lamech, who just goes to extraordinary lengths to boast of his evil. But at the end of that, we don't see any more of Cain's line. What we see now is a new line. Because Adam and Eve have another child. Seth. And through Seth, we see this new book of generations. This is the story of Seth's family tree, which, by the way, is our family tree. Cain's line, we see no more. After the flood, that line's gone. It is Seth's line that is our line. And here we see through Seth, Verse 3, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Now, why would you say that? They're all image bearers. But I think the writer of Genesis is saying that this is a point to see that, that we are still image bearers in God's image. That no matter what happens next and how bad it gets, and it's going to get downright awful, people are image bearers of God. They are precious to him. He has made them. In his likeness. We then read in verse 6, Seth lives 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Enosh fathered Kenan and so on and so on. And, And life outside the garden, we saw last time, life outside the garden, Adam and Eve can't be in the garden anymore, they're like camping outside the garden. You know what it's like camping with sin around and kids? It's hard. Well, life is hard, but but now it just seems to be getting better. Because look at their lives. Like, it it seems prosperous. It's almost like if they had Instagram, they would be Instagramming it. I'm living 830 years. Hashtag love and life. That's what it it almost seems like. Well, life is good. Love and life. Uh, Love and life has become the catchphrase of our generation, hasn't it? I don't know. I mean, historians could tell you. I I didn't look this up, didn't do any reading or research, didn't go to the library. I'm not sure that the World War II generation was hashtagging loving lifing it. I think it's it's ours. And you could blame the boomers. The millennials are always blaming the boomers. Good on you, boomer. But hey, millennials, you're now middle-aged. Gen Z's coming. And they're going to blame you. What goes around comes around. Us millennials, well, I'm not a millennial, I'm Gen X, by the way, so I'm, I'm a pastor, we're done. It's finished here, it's over. But that's a mantra of our generation, isn't it? Hashtag love and life. In fact, it's become a mantra, it's become the thing to live for. Like, people have nothing else beyond it. There's, 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 no, there's nothing after death, at least we secretly hope there isn't. 
We're banking. We've got all our chips on the fact, the, the, the theory that there's nothing after death. So all I got is hashtag love and life. That if if I can just squeeze the joy out of this life, that's that's what we get. And Adam and Eve, perhaps they were loving life to a certain extent, but we read there are thorns and thistles in life. Well, yes, there are thorns and thistles, but life can still be enjoyable. John Bon Jovi, one of our poets, even said that. You know, John Bon Jovi, one of our poets, said, Every rose has its song. Just like every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. There's too much singing today, there'll be no singing next time. It's okay. Of course life has thorns and thistles, but what do we do? We dress up the thorns and thistles. It's okay. Put a band-aid on it. You know, what, the, what, the, what, the, what do the Scottish do? They get the thistle and they make it their national flower. Right? Point is, we try and make the best out of life and we try and cling to this one and say, this is what we've got. And look at it. It does look pretty good. Adam lives for 930 years. Seth, 807. Enosh, 815. And then there's Methuselah, the oldest person in the Bible. 969 years, almost 1,000 years old. And they're all living well into their 7, 8, 900s. They wouldn't just get letters from the queen or the king. They got, like, letters from everybody. Imagine the birthday cake. Love and life thousand candles on your birthday cake love and life except there's a problem because every birthday every year every revolution of the sun there's a pattern in genesis 5 did you notice it what is the most repeated phrase in genesis 5 and he died you see it there i think it's poignant that adam's death is listed here so we've kind of Last few episodes, we sort of haven't seen Adam much, but now he's back. In fact, if you do the calculations, Adam lives a long time, pretty close, if not around kind of Noah's time. So, so there's, there's, there's generation crossover. He lives so long, but his death is therefore so poignant. Because Adam had to bury a child first. And if you know a parent's had to bury a child, that is, that is a tragic experience. And then Adam has his own funeral. The first man has a funeral. The man made from dust is now dust to dust. He was told, in the day you disobey God, you'll surely die. And what does the serpent say? You shall surely not die. And what do we do? We believe the lie. But look at the generation list. There's life, yes, but look at death, 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 death. Funeral upon funeral upon funeral, burial upon burial. Death becomes them. And death has been a feature of life. It's part of your family tree. Your family tree is shaped around death. When Adam and Eve broke trust with God in the garden, that died that, that day. They didn't physically die that day, they spiritually died, and spiritual death leads to physical death. Last episode, we saw the spiral of sin and how it just gets worse and worse and worse. It takes over everything. And now we see, no matter how much people can hashtag love life, we are dying, friends. 
Some of us have been diagnosed with something that we know our life is cut short, but some of us believe the serpent's lie still, don't we? I haven't got cancer. I'm not sick. I'm a millennial and I'm fit and healthy. We believe the lie, even not subtly and secretly. But we are dying. We are dead people walking. A good question to ask yourself is this. Where will I be in a hundred years' time? Now, use a hundred years because you could say ten years, and oh, I'm still here. Twenty, I'm still here. Fifty, oh, I'll still be here. No, a hundred. It's very highly likely everyone in this room will taste death. Unless Christ returns, but we'll taste death. We will be dead in a hundred years' time. We live in a, well, we've got a pretty good church building. It's fantastic. We're so thankful for it. But it's not the old church buildings. The old church buildings, particularly in Europe, the UK, would have plaques around the place. We're not really into plaques. We just have fire hose reel, keep clear of that door, stuff like that. But they have plaques that also have cemeteries next to them. Why is the cemetery next to the church? Because that's the congregation of saints that you have this universal fellowship with. They have passed, they've gone to glory, some of them. People, it reminds you that death is not far. Friends, do you realise that death is a foreigner here? Like when you're at a graveside funeral and you see that casket, that coffin go into the grave, there's, there's no way in the world it would be appropriate to hashtag loving life at that point. We try. Look, I, I'm in the business. I, you know, I'm a, I guess I'm a, you know, I'm a minister, right? So people say, oh, you, your job is hatch, match and dispatch. Well, yes. So I, I do a lot of funerals. I grew up in a small country church, which meant I went to more funerals than weddings, just by the nature of the demographic. And I've seen so many funerals, people try and make something like, like we, even at a graveside, we, we play the footy song or whatever it is. And I, and I get people are, are kind of messy in their grief. We are messy. But we try. But there's, there's something wrong with this. We should look at death and not play the footy song and go, woo, yeah, at least you got to watch the grand final. We should say, there's something wrong here. Death is a foreigner, it's an alien invader, it doesn't belong here. That's why we cry. So when we see strange things in the Bible happen to strange people in the Bible, we have to ask why. What about Enoch? You see Enoch? Enoch didn't die. Enoch didn't die. Not in the way that we talk about death or understand it or experience it. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Pause. He's relatively young. In his generation, relatively young. 365, he's a millennial for the thousand-year-old people. But Enoch walked with God and he was not, or he was not found, for God took him. 
He didn't experience death in the same way that you and I do. Now this happens to one other person, at least in the scriptures, that we're told. Um, Moses is a different story, but it happens to Elijah. You've got Elijah and he's mentoring Elisha. So Elisha's his ministry trainee. And um, they're walking along and Elijah knows the end of his ministry is coming. And then instead of Elisha having to conduct Elijah's funeral, no surprise, fiery horses and chariots come down and take Elijah away. He doesn't taste death like you and I do. He's like Enoch, he's taken straight into heaven. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, what's interesting here, the first time we saw the word walk in Genesis is in 3 verse 8, where God was walking in the garden. Now, when God's walking in the garden in chapter 3, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're not walking, they're running. And which direction are they running? Away from God. So in Genesis 3, 8, here is God same word, walking in the garden. There's Adam and Eve, right? Walking away from God as, or running away as fast as their sin can carry them. But here's something incredible. In the middle of sin and death, Enoch walked with God. Now, what does that mean? And why is it that this guy walks with God and then he gets taken when there's so much death around him? What does it mean that he walked with God? Does it mean kind of like, you know, you can see it now in all the bookstores where. Not great books are published. Um, God is your personal fitness trainer. Walking with God and, you know, into, for the next 40 days challenge. You can see that kind of thing happening. Is that what it means? That we, we take this verse and we take it out of context and write a whole book about 40 days of walking with God? No, no, that's, that's not what it means. Please don't do that. I know you won't, but our, our book publishing should write better books than that. What does it mean that Enoch walked with God? We actually understand this if we see what we see again and again throughout Genesis. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's why we had our cross-reference reading from Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verse 5, we read this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, how do you please God? Again, you don't have to guess because the writer of Hebrews tells you in the next verse, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. People try and please God all the time. If I just please God and do the right things, obey the right laws, live my life a certain way, dress the right way, do the right festivals, the ceremonies, you know, perhaps I'll get some Old Testament law even. I'll become an old Judaistic Pharisee and do all those things. If I do those things, then God will bless me. No. It's by faith in Him, not in faith in yourself or what you do. Look at this, friends, hear me. Hear God's word. Righteousness with God, walking with God, does not depend upon the walker, but depends upon the one they're walking with. Righteousness does not depend upon you, the walker, but on the one you're walking with. Do you have faith in your own walk rate, 
your own performance? Got your Garmin or your Galaxy or whatever those things are? And do, is, that, is that my performance is measured? Is that where your trust is? Or is your trust in his performance of holiness, righteousness and grace given to you? For that's what we see next. We meet Noah. We meet Noah in verse 25. Somehow, we see through Noah, we're told, there'll be some relief from the stuff of sin and death of this world. And that relief is a bit of a hope, a glimmer of hope at this point. We won't see what that is yet. And if you know the story of Noah, even vaguely, you'll know it involves a lot of upheaval. A lot of upheaval of the world. But we see of Noah something different again. We see not only in verse 29, 529, they call him Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. We see not just there's relief, but there's something about Noah like Enoch. Something about him. We see that this man, this man, is given favour, he's given grace. And he's given favour and he's given grace, which is a contrast to the society around who don't give, but what they see, they take. And this takes us into chapter 6. See, in chapter 6, just when you thought, well, there'll be life and death and life will just carry on, it'll be fine. And if you believe the social pundits, the scientists, the social commentators, life is just going to go on and on. And when it gets bad here, we're going to find another planet to populate. And that's going to be our rescue or our escape. We're just going to, it's just going to go on until one day the sun blows up and then hopefully we're somewhere else in the galaxy with a better sun, a newer version, newer model, got some more clicks on it, ready to go. We just think life's going to go on. And that's society's kind of approach, which means if life is going to go on, I'll do whatever I want in life. Not only will I enjoy it, but I'll take away from you so I get to enjoy. And that's what we see happening in chapter 6. Sinners are multiplying. Not saints like Enoch. Sinners are multiplying, and as the sinners multiply, it leads to mayhem, and sin is getting out of control, and then this happens, chapter 6, verse 2. It might seem strange to our ears, but I do want you to read these verses, and we'll see what it means. Chapter 6, verse 2, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, we often hear these words and go, What? in the world, who in the world are the Nephilim? What is going on here? And there are theories that range. Look, if you... Yeah. There are theories that are just... numerable theories. I mean, I can summarise them. One is, are they fallen angels? Is that what the Nephilim are? And they see the sons of God and fallen angels marry. Well, that's a theory. I don't think so. And I'll show you why in a moment. Um... Are they saints in the line of Seth? Like, are these great ones, like they're great saints, they're, they're great ones in that sense, but who marry the ungodly daughters of Cain? But, well, that doesn't hold up because we see they're not doing good things here and later. How are we going to know who these Nephilim are? 
I mean, apart from, I may have said this before, but uh, Amy and I have a joke. So uh, uh, in our household, if, if I do something extraordinary, you know, you know, men, husbands, we do something extraordinary, we like to tell everyone about it. As I saw this comedian once, it's pretty funny. He says, um, my wife has been behind my back looking after the children. I didn't know that. I, I, I thought the children just did what they did. I didn't know someone had to look after them. So my wife does all this work and she doesn't make a big deal about it, but, but when I do something, like I like to say to her, hey darling, I took my coffee cup from the lounge room and I put it on the bench on top of the dishwasher. Just telling you about that. It's what we husbands can be like, let's be honest. And when it comes to the Nephilim, and we do that somewhat boasting, the little joke is when Amy says, that's amazing, you took your coffee cup and put it on top of the dishwasher. Like, well, I just want to tell you something. I need to tell you, I'm Nephilim. <laughs> now, that's a little joke. And maybe you didn't find it that funny, but... I think the Nephilim are a picture of real men, real people, who do what boasting husbands do, who do what boasting men do. And how do I think that? Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. I'm cautious to say they're fallen angels because the Bible doesn't tell us that. But the Bible does tell us in the book of Numbers who the Nephilim are. So if you wanted to, you can look this up. But Numbers 13.33, Numbers 13.33, Scripture interprets Scripture. The spies go into the promised land. And when they go in, this is what they say. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. So they've even named a person. They kind of know who these people are from. And who seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem like to them. In other words, these are great men. These are warriors. These are big men. Now, if you're looking for someone who was not a fallen angel, not a strange person, but a big guy who fought battles and was a great kingly type man, who can we think of immediately comes to mind? Goliath. You see, in our society, there are people that are great men. They might be big, but they might be great in other ways too. Friends, I think what we see here in chapter 6, these great men, these Nephilim, are boastful. Not because of the coffee cup on the bench. They're boastful because they're doing whatever they want and no one is going to stop them. And what are they doing whatever they want here? Have you noticed this? Have a read. Look what they're doing. They took as their wives any they chose... They took as their wives any they chose. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also after, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they were born children to them, they were mighty men of old, men of renown. The phrase sons of God simply means, as we've seen in Genesis, people born in the image of God. These are men, these are great men, these are kings, these are warriors, and they are doing whatever they want because they rule the earth. And when it comes to seeing women, they take women as property. I'll have that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, and they're marrying the daughters of men, they're doing whatever they want, and no one's going to stop them. Because no one sees what they see in their rule and power and boasting, except God sees. God sees, verse 5, 6 verse 5. When society sees, they take they take women or property, whatever it is. But when God sees, he gives. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth 
and that every intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, these great men, the Nephilim, just contribute with their so-called greatness to the evil of the world, don't they? And verse 5 describes the extent of nature of sin. It changes everything for bad. There are men like that in our world. There are people like that in our world. They lead our world and they take and take and take from themselves at the expense of so many others. And who's going to stop them? Who sees? God sees. God saw. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And God is planning to bring disaster and justice upon a world gone wrong. And where we see a world in death, what's God going to do? He's not just going to bring death in generations. He's going to bring death all at once for everybody. Verse 7, I will blot out humanity whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry I've made them. There'll be no more living forever like this because death will end them all. Except Noah and his household. A household, a little household is going to be saved. Because verse 8 Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And here's where we finish, and I think it's an incredible point to see. It's the first time the word appears in Genesis, in the Old Testament, and the word here is translated as favour, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. ESV uses favour, your translation may be different. The word doesn't mean that Noah found favourable conditions, like favourable weather today. Do you know what the word can also be translated as? Grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, keep reading and keep coming in the next few weeks. You will see Noah is not a righteous man in and of himself. Like Noah is not a perfect man. Uh, Noah is very much like me, like you, like us. He's still a sinner, and by the way, his children are sinners. So although there's this household that's saved on the ark, what comes out with that household at the end is sinning. Sin, sinners and sin. Sin still exists. But Noah, what's the difference between Noah and the rest of humanity? When the rest of humanity is facing impending justice and judgment and death all at once, Noah gets grace. That's the difference. Hebrews 11 verse 7, the finish of a cross-reference passage, by faith Noah being warned by concerning events yet unseen with reverent fear constructed an ark. And why? We see at the end of that verse, because he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He received grace and he trusted in God's grace for him. Friends, do you want to live forever? To live forever is to get grace in Christ. Receive that grace. And believe in the grace of God towards you in Jesus Christ. And then to walk by grace. To walk by grace in your life. To live every day by grace. Not by your performance. Not by your righteousness. Not by just saying it's those Nephilim that are the bad people. Those capitalists, leaders of our society or those dictators. It's not just them. It's you and I too. 
and to believe that by grace on a daily basis. Friends, why would we read this today? Why this series? Why now? We preach through books here, we do that, we let God set the agenda. We don't skip chapters, we preach through whole books. But why would we do this now? Like this would be, it's a generation list, it seems like we're just reading someone's family tree. What, what has this got to do with our life today? Well, think on this. Imagine when this was read, after it first been penned, when this book of generations was read to those generations. Perhaps it was bedtime reading. We're told in the scriptures to read it to our children, to our households. Perhaps it's, they read it over dinner. Why would this be read? Is this read, are we doing this today to make you feel bad about life and death? Is that why it's read? Is that what it's for? Is it so you stop loving life and stop Instagramming your, your life and instead plan your funeral and Instagram that? Is that why we're doing it? No. Why is this here? So that we see what God sees. So that we see what our world is really like. That we're not deep down good people who can get ourselves out of this mess. Deep down there's a problem and it's sin and we can't fix it. And you can't avoid your death and you can't raise anything to life. This is written for us to see that my intentions and my thoughts in my heart are evil often. This is written so I would see my hope. My hope is I get grace from God in Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Would you receive it? How has your life story been so far? I think many of us spend our life chasing the short-term things of this life and then secretly are disappointed. Ask anyone middle-age. They've got more disappointments than Gen Z. As you get older in life, ask anyone older than that, ask anyone in their sunset years, life is full of disappointments because life is not what it's meant to be. But there's a promise, grace given, even the sinful that we are, of life forever. And the only way you get that life is to find favour with God by faith in Him. The way God sees you, sinner that you are, is the reason He comes into this world of wrong, into your world of wrong, to save you from sin. And how does he do that? Because Jesus Christ is the only one who walked perfectly with God. Who was, in fact, righteous in and of himself. Jesus is the one yet who dies a sinner's death. Get this. Jesus, look at that list in Genesis 5. And he died, and he died, and he died. Jesus joins that list. Jesus comes in to the world of generations, this book of generations, and he died. And he died... A death that you and I deserve. He died for you. But then get this. Jesus now, risen again, invites you to a new list. A list. It's called the book of life. And he lived. And she lives. And they live. Forever.
Let's believe it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, by your grace, you sent your Son to die that death that we are so used to seeing, but this one's different. He dies my death. He dies a death of judgment. Thank you that you sent Jesus into the world, that we have found favour by faith in him. We have forgiveness of sin. Our guilt is gone and we get grace. Thank you for life in Christ and life forever. And Father, we pray now for those of us who are new to this, who are new to the good news of Jesus, who live in a world of bad news and perhaps perhaps wonder if this is all there is, we pray they would see the wonder, the truly amazing grace you give us in Jesus and believe too. And we pray that that grace would change us, that it would change the way we walk, that we'd walk by faith in the righteousness you give in Jesus. And we pray all these things with thankfulness in Jesus' name. Amen.